coming to you direct from the heart of New York City all the way to wherever you are, you're listening to The VIP. Jazz Wall Report, ladies and gentlemen, on this show, we talk about terror in our world today and specifically ISIS. Sun Tzu, the great warrior, once said that in order to defeat your enemy, you must first understand it. But do we really understand ISIS? Does our government understand ISIS? Because if we think there are a bunch of mad savages running around creating chaos, then nothing could be further from the truth. And to explain who they are, what they do, and why they do it, I have probably America's and the world's leading expert on this topic. He's an internationally recognized authority on issues of national security security, irregular warfare, and terrorism. He served as an advisor to the Department of Defense in the renewal of its irregular warfare joint operating concept and is contributing co-editor of Toward a Grand Strategy Against Terrorism. He currently serves as the Major General Matthew Horner Distinguished Chair of Military Theory at the Marine Corps University. He's none other than Dr. Sebastian Gorka. Welcome to the show, Sebastian. Great to be on the show, Vip. Thank you for inviting me. Well, sir, you know the reason I invited you, because it was great to meet you at the uh, U.S. National Guard event, I think, about two weeks ago. And and what you said really blew my mind. I mean, I just didn't realize, you know, the extent of how ISIS operate. And I have a funny feeling that, you know, a lot of people today don't really know much about ISIS and their significance. Do you agree? Uh, Unfortunately, yes. And I think that's even true for a large amount of the policymakers uh, in Washington. They don't understand the significance of this threat and how it is much more dangerous than al-Qaeda. You know, I mean, I'll tell you what I understand. I know ISIS stands for Islamic State of Iraq and Syria, and I know they're a bunch of barbaric terrorists. But they're not a recent phenomenon. They've been around for a very long time, from what you said. Well, yes. So, So ISIS is just the latest version of a decades-long evolution of what is best termed the global jihadi movement. Jihad is an ancient concept in Islam. It's been around since the 7th century, since its inception. But in the 20th century, it was redefined and it was really operationalized specifically by people like the Muslim Brotherhood mm-hmm. after the dissolution of the original Islamic Empire after World War One, And in the years since then, in the last 90 years, there have been various organizations that have taken up this mantle. Al-Qaeda is just one of them. But ISIS is, to date, the most successful uh, iteration of the global jihadi movement. But why all of a sudden the, the sudden prominence of them? If they've well, been around they, for such a long time, because they've they, they've really um, they have a more pragmatic approach to this project of theirs, this global project. You've had uh, dozens and dozens of threat groups. The Brotherhood included Al Qaeda, Egyptian Islamic Jihad, Lashkar Taiba, the Taliban, but but they weren't really pragmatic. They were, in their own vicious way, idealists, and they they used violence, whether it was beheadings, whether it was the the 9/11 attacks, to try and create or reestablish the Islamic Empire. Mm. But ISIS is is far more intelligent, has read the right books on irregular warfare, and said. Violence is just one part of our toolkit. Uh, Violence is just one tool towards the greater end. And it's not just about decapitations or terrorist attacks. 
It's about capturing territory, and it's about governing. It's about establishing Sharia law on those parts of the Middle East and Africa where we have reestablished the caliphate. So they're just simply a more pragmatic group of terrorists that knows how to wage war against the civilized world. So if I had to use an analogy, uh, Al-Qaeda would be a street gang and ISIS are the mafia. Uh, I like that. Uh, if, if we want to stick to the, the labels that have been bandied around of late, the, the real trouble is that it's not ISIS that is the JV team. It is, in fact, Al-Qaeda that is the JV team, and uh, ISIS is you know, heading towards the Super Bowl. Hmm. And, and, and how are they different from Al-Qaeda, apart from well, being uh, more savage? Well, there's um, one of the biggest things, the, the, two, the two most important aspects that really differentiates this group from Al-Qaeda is their understanding of uh, eschatological themes in Islam, meaning the themes that have to do with Judgment Day and the end of the world. Every religion has these, whether you're a Hindu, Christian, Buddhist, or what have you, and so does Islam. And ISIS relies very heavily on the idea that end times has begun and that they have captured key territory within that story of end times. This is Syria and Iraq, which in uh, Muslim terms is called al-Sham. And they basically said, look, guys, um, it's begun. The final war, the holy war has begun. And if you want to save your soul, you better join us because there's not going to be another opportunity for you to save your soul. And if you ally that, if you connect that to their incredibly savvy exploitation of social media, those two things are a deadly cocktail. They have more than 21,000 social media platforms, not, not followers, mm. mind you, actually social media channels. And through all of them, Facebook, Twitter, Reddit, you name it, they are constantly beaming this message of, gentlemen, this is it. You better, you better mobilize and join us because this is your last chance to guarantee your place in heaven. But what in the world events have triggered the fact for them to say that the end of the world is near now? Well, it it's really has to do with this eschatology, this story of end times that, that all good Muslims have been taught. So um, if you're a Christian, if you read the book of Revelation, if you're familiar with the Apocrypha, uh, we have our own version of, of the end times. And in that, it's the expectation that there will be great wars between an antichrist and between the last two true Christians on the plains of Megiddo. Your, your listeners can, can Google this. It's actually a town in northern Israel, the town of Megiddo. It's where we get in English the word Armageddon. That's actually where it comes from. Mm. Well, uh, in Islam, there is an equivalent, there is an analog for that, and it's called the territory of Al-Sham, which really in, in our geography refers to the, 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 the Levant or greater Syria. But it's the same territory that ISIS has captured in the last two years. It's those chunks of Syria and Iraq. And what they've said is, look, guys, we've named ourselves after this territory that you know, as a good Muslim, is the territory where the last holy war will occur between the forces of the kufr, the infidel, and the last true Muslims. And we haven't just named ourselves after this territory. 
we've actually captured it. So they, they are managing to, to execute a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy and say, look, you've been expecting this for 1,400 years. We stepped up to the plate. We've uh, gone into the Grand Mosque at Mosul, declared the caliphate, and Abu Bakr, the head of ISIS, says he is the caliph, he is the new emperor. So uh, we're just proving it day by day, and, and the scenario is coming to life before our very eyes. If ultimately al-Qaeda and ISIS have the same philosophy of, of being jihadists and, and maybe the same purpose, why are they not joining forces together? Well, that's a wonderful question. Um, so if, if you look at the, the history of um, the growth of Islam, the mm. Sunnah or the traditions, there are two uh, requirements historically for when a caliphate, when the empire can be declared. And those two conditions are, number one, you actually have to capture and hold territory. Al-Qaeda never did that in the last 14 years. They always leveraged and exploited pre-existing insurgencies such as the Taliban in Afghanistan or Shabab in Somalia. And second, everybody knows traditionally that the caliph is meant to be a descendant of the original tribe of which Muhammad, the founder of Islam, was a member. That's the Quraysh, the Qureshi tribe. Neither bin Laden nor the current head of al-Qaeda, Ayman al-Zawahiri, the Egyptian doctor, neither of them are Qureshi. So there's a qualitative difference between who's qualified or at least who's managed to satisfy those key requirements. And on top of that, there's a differing approach to, to what the end game is. The, the more elitist members of this jihadi organization or this movement like bin Laden or Zawahiri really poo-pooed. They really, they, they, they cocked a snook at the, uh, those, those more rube-like uh, Muslim extremists who, who thought the apocalypse was coming. And as a result, basically, ISIS and Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi filled the vacuum that al-Qaeda was either unprepared or, or, or unwilling to actually exploit. But do they fight among each other? Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. If, if you look at literally in the last three days, there's been very, very snarky statements uh, in, in public between al-Qaeda, between Ayman al-Zawahiri and ISIS. So, and and I, don't, I don't blame them, because think about it. What has al-Qaeda been for the last more than a decade they've been the 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 brand they've been you know the coca-cola if you will of jihad and in the last few years they've been supplanted nobody talks about al-qaeda anymore uh, we've arrested more than 70 isis sympathizers on u.s soil in the last 12 months and everybody's talking about isis so yes they they are competing for the same kind of territory in terms of branded branding but but it's really ISIS that has won the day. So couldn't we, I mean, in a Machiavellian uh, approach, sort of help al-Qaeda overcome ISIS and then demolish al-Qaeda? Well, look, th- these things on the surface seem very appealing, that you basically exploit, you know, two bad groups against each other. Mm. There's, a couple, there's a couple of problems with that. Number one, do we, do we really want to ever be found promoting and assisting 
a group that was responsible for 9-11, that was responsible for the deaths of all those people, the thousands of people and the people since then. So, number one, there's that moral uh, uh, obstruction. And second, all, when you do these kinds of Machiavellian things, there's always a huge danger of blowback. How much can you control a group like al-Qaeda, even if you're trying to exploit them against the deadlier threat? So, best best attack both of them mm. and deal with the most dangerous one first uh, as opposed to trying to exploit them uh, against each other. I know this sounds a very stupid question possibly, but why are ISIS at war with us? What, what have we done to them? Super question. No. Um, well, number one, let, let's destroy the, the, the conventional wisdom that it's because of what we do and not who we are. Mm. You know, this idea, I even heard it at, at an event last night where, you know, oh, America, you're always meddling in the Middle East and we shouldn't have invaded in Iraq and that's the reason. Um, let's just destroy that for, 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 for once and for all. Uh, jihad is not a function of the last 14 years. It's not even a function of the last 20 or 100 years. Think about it. Soon after America was created, one of the first ever missions we had to engage in militarily and was one of the first uh, operations the U.S. Marine Corps was ever deployed upon was to fight the Barbary pirates off the coasts of Tripoli. Who were the Barbary pirates? They were the jihadis of 200 years ago. So this isn't a new thing. This isn't a result of the creation of Israel or, or you know, our exploitation of, of oil in the Middle East. There has always been, for 1,400 years, mm. members of the Islamic faith who, who define their religion in terms of, you know, a, a global mandate in which all infidels must either convert or be dominated or be destroyed. So it is our existence, it is our values that are deemed to be antithetical to Islam from the point of view of groups like ISIS. And as a result, it doesn't matter what we do, we could pull all our troops out of every base in the world, they would still try to destroy us because they believe we are the infidels and they are the members of the only one true faith. So to say that ISIS stands for the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria is actually wrong because you're saying they have a strategy of global expansion. Absolutely, absolutely. Oh, your listeners can, can Google this straight away. Um, after the uh, Islamic State was declared last June from Mosul by Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, instantly they published maps all across social media, Twitter, Facebook, you name it, mm. of the caliphate they're trying to establish. And, and this is really, it's a little bit like the Cold War. It's a them-or-us uh, dichotomous conflict. Uh, either they win or we win, because they deem the whole territory of the world to be God's territory. And the only way to serve God and to see his sovereignty reign fully again mm. is to reestablish the theocratic empire of Islam, because that's what the caliphate means. But caliphate so means a system of Muslim government, am I right? It means, it means, the, the, it means the theocratic uh, entity that was the Islamic empire in which Sharia law is the law of the land and under which uh, everybody lives 
uh, under the sovereignty of a caliph or the religious emperor of the Muslim empire. So, yes, they, they wish to reinstate it, but this time they're not going to stop at, you know, reincorporating Spain or India or Central Europe. For them, it's the whole deal. The whole world must fall under Sharia law, and if you don't like it, tough, we're going to kill you anyway. Hmm. Let's talk about how they operate. How do ISIS make money? Wow. So there's there's a wonderful uh, unclassified research that's being done on this lately. Even the, uh, the Financial Times had a report on this just two weeks ago on their front page. So ISIS is, is, is different, is more sophisticated than al-Qaeda because they take this part of their, their operation very seriously. It's not just about charitable donations or, or you know, skimming bank accounts or things like that. They're actually running a, a, a quasi-nation state. So in the territory where they exist, they've not only taken control of the assets uh, on, on that land, they've raided the Iraqi National Bank, they stole more than $823 million. They're actually running revenue-producing uh, functions. They're taxing the population, literally taxing. And where are these populations? Uh, in Syria and Iraq and in all the territory that is controlled by ISIS affiliates, for example, Boko Haram is now an ISIS affiliate in Nigeria. So any of those populations where ISIS or its affiliates control the land, they are putting in place a taxation system. But they're not economically sophisticated countries, so you wouldn't really be able to get much, I'm, I'm thinking, I'm guessing. Well, it depends. I mean, if you look at Iraq, Iraq and Syria aren't exactly, you know, backward countries. They were industrialized nations, but that's not the major source of income. Of course, right now, in the, in, in the last uh, two or three years, the major source of income is illicit oil sales. So they've captured the refineries in, in Iraq and elsewhere, and they're selling them on the black market. The estimate is the U.S. government uh, unclassified estimate between two and four million dollars a day of illicit revenue. But it's not just the oil; it's also the uh, hostage taking, mm. the kidnapping, and of course uh, something that's been reported quite widely in the Western media: the sale of very rare uh, antiquities on the black market. So when they're not destroying. Um, you know, Shiite uh, uh, artifacts or Yazidi artifacts or Christian artifacts, they're actually being very canny and they're selling those on the black market. So they have, you know, like any good 401k, they have a rather diversified income stream and, and the Financial Times estimated the last year of ISIS revenue as $500 million. In one year? In 12 months, yes. In 12 months, wow. Now, how do they recruit and, and who are they looking to recruit? Because when you well, gave me that, when you gave that speech, it was alarming what you said. So tell us. Yeah. So so again, here they're also being more sophisticated uh, in their understanding of, of how to win than Al Qaeda was. Mm. So um, they've recruited in the first nine months of their renewed operations in Syria an estimated nineteen thousand foreign fighters. So we have to absorb that for a second. That's fighters in excess of all the Syrians and Iraqis that they domestically recruited. So these are people from the outside, from Jordan, Syria, Egypt, and among those, there are 4,000 estimated Westerners. So that's Australians, Brits, Americans. How are they doing that? Through social media. They are every day, you know, they, they are pumping out the message that the caliphate, the empire is back, 
as a good Muslim, you must serve it. Mm. It is your duty to come and fight. And the, the, the way that this is being done is there's, there's two messages they're sending. Come and fight for the caliphate on the caliphate's soil. So, you know, buy your plane ticket to Turkey and walk across the border and join our cadre. Or if you're living in infidel lands like the United States, there's another option. You can choose to stay where you are and take the fight to the infidel where you are. And this is, this is one of the most disturbing statistics of late. Of the, all the ISIS arrests in America in the last 12 months, a full 29%, so almost a third of all those arrested as ISIS activists here, had no intention of going to the Middle East or North Africa to fight. They thought they could best serve ISIS and the caliphate by killing Americans on U.S. soil. So, so they have a, 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 a dual approach. And on top of that, last point, it's not just about violence. They have started to advertise on the Internet that we need professionals. We need people who understand medicine, nurses, doctors, engineers. We need people who know how to run a, a sewage facility because we are now governing and we need to provide services. That's something that al-Qaeda never did, and that's why ISIS is, is far more dangerous. That's such an intelligent, a very sophisticated approach. They're actually recruiting people to start building a city yeah to 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 build a a nation and to expand it this Mm. is you know they've taken a leaf out of the the master of guerrilla warfare he wasn't a muslim he he was even an atheist and that's mao zedong mao really wrote the the book uh, after world war ii and he said look guys violence is only part of the formula sooner or later you've actually got to provide services for the populations on the territory you've captured. And ISIS, unfortunately, aren't just religious extremists. They've read their Mao, and they know how to do irregular warfare in a way that that creates a sustainable territory, which they can use as a launching pad for future attacks. Give us a comparison. If if you know the figures, they've recruited 19,000 fighters. Do we know how many the U.S. Army have recruited in that year? <laughs> okay, so a couple of figures. Um, let's go back in time. Mm. Uh, Al-Qaeda, before it became Al-Qaeda, before bin Laden took it over, uh, was called the MAK, which in Arabic stands for the uh, Arab Services Bureau. It was based out of Pakistan, and it recruited foreign jihadis during the 1980s to uh, fight the Soviets in Afghanistan. That organization, the the proto-Al-Qaeda, if you will, in a decade, so between 1979 and 1989, when the the Soviets withdrew, withdrew, recruited 55,000 foreign fighters. So Mm 55,000 in 10 years. ISIS, in just the first 12 months of its operation, according to uh, its renewed operations, according to the United Nations, which always... uh, has low end estimates in the in these reports has recruited 22,000 foreign fighters so think about that for a moment isis has recruited in one year half the number of jihadis that it took al qaeda a decade to recruit on top of that if you look at what we're doing uh, we've uh, well the obama administration initiated this 500,000 million dollar uh, project to recruit syrians to fight isis uh, we 
recruited and trained less than 200 uh, ISIS fighters. The, the majority of those were killed or uh, defected or gave their weapons over to the jihadists in theater, mm. which meant, uh, according to the latest uh, testimony in, in Capitol Hill, we were left with nine, that's not 900 or 9,000, but nine insurgents that we had trained. And as a result, the program was canceled just over two weeks ago by the Obama administration. Yet the escalation in the Middle East and the deployment of Russian forces into theater has uh, led to the Obama administration deciding to deploy 50 of our own special operations of forces into theater. 50, not 50,000, VIP, uh, 50 <laughs> individual hmm. soldiers into the theater. Now, one in four recruits come from around the world, like you were saying, Europe, UK, US. That, that's quite a lot. That's a very large number. What, what is it that attracts someone to their ideology? Because, you know, just as much as they're trained to believe whatever they're trained to believe, we, we, we are led to believe freedom, democracy, uh, success, um, our, 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 our American culture, way of life, the Western way of life is, is so attractive. So what is more attractive than that that's leading someone to join ISIS? Right. Well, again, we, we have to jettison some conventional wisdoms and some cliches. It is absolutely nothing to do with uh, poverty or lack of political enfranchisement, which is, which is the, the narrative that we hear so much coming out of the political elite mm. here in the United States. It, it, you know, if you look at the 19 hijackers uh, of 9-11, none of them were born in a Palestinian refugee camp. If we look at bin Laden, if we look at Jihadi John, Zawahiri, Abu Bakr, none of these men were poor and uneducated. So w what is it? What, you know, what makes people do this? Um, we could digress here for hours, I think, Vip, on, on, on the philosophical questions of, of where is Western civilization today. Mm. I, I think the question is, uh, revolves around meaning. There's that young man, whether it's Richard Reed, the shoe bomber, whether it's the 7-7 seven, seven, uh, bombers in the UK, whether it's the people who did the Mumbai attack. What are they looking for in life? They're, they're young men, and they're looking for purpose. They're looking for identity. In, in a secularizing postmodern civilization, hmm. we, we've kind of emptied ourselves of, of giving meaningful answers to these questions. So what does it mean to be modern? What does it mean to be a member of Western civilization? As a result, we've created this, this multicultural, morally relativistic vacuum in which there are people looking for purpose and meaning, mm -hmm. and along comes a radical imam, or along comes ISIS on, on social media and says, oh, young man, you're looking for purpose? How about being a holy warrior for God? That has attraction. I mean, it's, it's the kind of thing that we do in the Marine Corps. We, we give a young man a purpose larger than themselves. It's not about you, Johnny boy. It's about serving something greater than yourself. It should be serving the republic, serving the values of human dignity, freedom, and democracy. But for the jihadists, it's about serving something greater than a nation, uh, greater than, than a philosophical point of view. It's about serving 
God. So, and let's remember what the word Islam means in Arabic. The word actually doesn't mean peace. Hmm. It means submission. Submission to whom? Submission to the will of Allah. And that's what ISIS is leveraging. Now, you identified three phases of their strategy that they are conducting. And you mentioned that. And you said the first one was vexation. The second one was spread savagery. And the third one was administer savagery. Can you explain to our listeners what they each mean and where we are at at the moment? Sure, absolutely. So that if you want to really understand the, the inside playbook of what ISIS is doing today, mm. there's a, an e-book that any of your listeners can, can find online. There, there's another Abu Bakr. There's an Abu Bakr Naji, N-A-J-I, Naji, an mm. Egyptian jihadi, who was killed about seven years ago. Before he died, he wrote this book on, on how to pragmatically create the caliphate. And as you mentioned, it breaks down into three phases of operations, and this is like exactly what ISIS is doing right now. So the first phase, the vexation phase, is, is ISIS about two or three years ago, where you're, you're constantly doing irregular attacks, you're using terrorism to attrit, to, to weaken the infidel, which is us, or the infidels' allies or partners in the Middle East, to wear them down. And that is a, 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 an ongoing process that prepares the ground, the battlefield, for the second phase, which is called the spreading of savagery phase. Hmm. Here, your attacks are coordinated. They're synchronized. This is ISIS about six months ago, and it's exactly what happened in, in Ramadi, before Ramadi fell. So here, the point is of this phase to so um, synchronize your attacks that you make it impossible for the local government to actually govern its territory. So uh, Assad in Damascus can't run his country. The government is of, of Maliki, as was in Iraq, can't run their country. And if, if you look at Ramadi, they absolutely follow this, because I have unclassified reports that the day that city fell in Iraq, there were more than 100 vehicle-borne IEDs, more than 100 uh, improvised explosive devices on vehicles that were used the day that city fell, which meant they're following the playbook of synchronizing attacks, and it worked because the city fell, which leads to the last phase. And this is a phase that can last 50 years, could last 500 years. This is called the consolidation and the expansion phase. Once you've captured territory, they get pragmatic and they say, okay, now we have to run that territory. We integrate the population into our fighting force. We implement Sharia law. And basically what we do is we create a giant launch platform, a, a what we would call a forward operating base, but on, on, on national scale, on, on the size of a, of a nation. And we use that territory, this proto-caliphate, mm. to launch new phase one and phase two operations in new territories. So I expect next it'll be Jordan, it'll be Saudi Arabia. And remember, we've got those 4,000 Westerners with Western passports. So once we've consolidated on our territory in the Middle East, we can send those young men back to the countries where they came from, and we could potentially see lots of Charlie Hebdo-like or Mumbai attacks on our soil, because remember, these people can travel freely, and they want to destabilize our countries as well. So where is America at the moment in that phase? Well, are we at the vexations phase? We, we, we are um, the next 
target of opportunity mm. once the phase three expansion phase consolidates. So, so right now, they really have to make this, this proto-caliphate work for themselves. And then once that's functioning, they're going to probably divide their attentions between the next countries in the region they want to take down and the people they want to kill in the, what is called the far enemy, which is us and our allies. And don't forget, they've got a beautiful uh, ally in all this, and that's the giant refugee waves that are flooding into Europe and will be coming to America, according to the Obama administration. Because if you're a bad guy, what are you going to be doing? You're going to be you know, spiking those refugee waves with your own agents and, and inserting them into the West so they could become sleepers for future attacks. You know, what, I, what I'm trying to figure out in, in, in this is, what have we yet to see from ISIS that we haven't seen yet? Is this the refugee wave? Is that the next thing? Um, I, I think, you know, if, if I were them, hmm. then, um, of course, I'd be uh, totally exploiting the refugee wave. I'd be, be using the human suffering of these hundreds of thousands of people as, as a cover, as a smokescreen to insert my people into those territories that I deem to be infidel lands. Uh, and on top of that, I would expect that there would be a, a, an, an attempt to use phase two type operations on our soil. So coordinating attacks, not, not one-off so-called lone wolves. Mm. That, that, that's not the, the threat. But if you had a coordinated suicide attack or attacks in multiple um, cities across America on the same day, Remember what happened with the D.C. sniper VIP? One guy, one guy with an accomplice basically shut down D.C. People wouldn't get out of their vehicles to, to fill them full of gas. So imagine if you just did 20 of those a day in cities across America. That's, that's what I'm really afraid of, super cheap operations that could paralyze the functioning of the United States. Can't, can't you, you also mentioned a very fascinating another statistic was that they're on over 21,000 social media websites. Um, shouldn't these sites shut them down? Well, look, that's the trouble of the Internet. The Internet was originally invented mm. to have you know, a multiplicity of redundancy. The whole point is that you, know, you can take one service provider down, but somebody will then set it up again in you know, Moldova or Indonesia. So it's not about you know, technologically taking them down. Mm. What really has to be done is we have to counter them at their game. We have to have an ideological pushback at a strategic level that targets their ideology and delegitimizes it. But that's impossible right now because we have a political censorship uh, within, within the current uh, powers that be in Washington. And you're not allowed to talk about the real reasons why the violence is occurring and how people are recruited. Don't talk about religion. Don't even use the word jihad. It's all about economics, poverty, and politics. And as a result, we haven't even begun the serious counter-ideological push, which is, which is really why we are where we are today. How, how do you delegitimize a religious objective? How do you discredit a religion? How do you empower their mindset? I mean, this sounds like a war we'll never win. Well, let, let's be specific here. It's not a war between religions. 
it really is a, a war on the first degree within a religion. And our no, allies will say that. I'm not saying that there's a war between religions, but how do you tell them that them fighting for their God is wrong? Because that automatically is blasphemy. We don't have to tell them. We're not going to convince them. Hmm. We have to convince everybody else who, who may want to join them or who, who sympathizes or who's afraid of them and doesn't want to take action. So hmm. let's remember, you, you know the ISIS video in which that Jordanian fighter pilot was burnt alive? Let's remind ourselves, what was his religion? He wasn't a Jew. He wasn't a Christian. He wasn't a Hindu or a you know, Zoroastrian. He was a Sunni like ISIS. So how do we delegitimize them? We ask very simple questions. Mr. Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, you are the new caliph of a so-called Islamic State. Um, you just said that you're fighting for all Muslims and you are the protector of the faithful. Then why are the majority of your victims actually Muslims? Because the Christians are suffering and the Jews are suffering and the Yazidis are suffering. But by far the greatest number of victims of the jihadis today are other Muslims. So we have to destroy their narrative that they say they are the real Muslims and they are fighting the infidel to protect the religion. And, and when we do that, who are we also empowering? We're empowering the good guys in the region, the Muslims who are a threat to ISIS, the Jordanians, the Egyptians, the Kurds of the region who are also an enemy to ISIS. So, you know, let, let me be clear here. I'm not a neoconservative who wants to invade these countries and shape them in the mold of America. That's absurd. But there are people in the region who want to take the fight to ISIS, the good guy Sunnis. But we need to help them and we need to support them. And sending 50 trainers, that really doesn't cut it, Vip. No, it absolutely doesn't. It's a joke. I mean, you know, based on your intelligence and, and, and your sources, I mean, what do ISIS think of us? <laughs> um, look, the, the biggest sin we commit in the intelligence community uh, is to say they're just a bunch of crazy guys. Mm. These aren't crazy guys who are improvising. They are committed and they believe and they have a plan. So what do they think about us? They're a little bit um, dichotomous on this. They're a little bit schizophrenic. Because if you read their materials, as I do, on the one hand, uh, they say that we are decrepit, we are weak, we are flabby, we are decadent. Uh, we are on the on the on the imminent. We're imminently about to collapse. Yeah. And then in the next sentence, I'll say, you know, these guys are, are the the imperial forces. They invade. They have the aircraft carriers. They have the missiles. They're they're arrogant. They're imperialistic. So you know, they mix these two things together. We are we are we are decadent supermen, if you will, <laughs> and and they they want to destroy us because of what we represent. But at the same time, they have this nagging admiration because of our capability. Abilities. Look at the fact that, you know, they hate what we stand for, but at the same time, they love Facebook, they love Twitter, they love Reddit, they love Snapchat, because, you know, it's useful for them, but despite the fact that we invented it. So they have a little bit of a schizophrenic attitude to who we are and what we represent and our technology. What, what have you recommended to our government to do, and, and are they doing it? Well, listen, there's a kind of glass ceiling here. I work every day. I have the honor to work every day with our special operations forces, our special forces in Fort Bragg, our agents and analysts at the FBI and our members of the intelligence community, and especially the Marine Corps. Mm. But 
guys who get it and they just want more information to be able to do their job better. Uh, what we have between them and, and the political elite is, is this kind of um, one-way mirror that, that is impermeable. Uh, we, we have political decisions made seven years ago that, that deny the reality of the threat. When you say ideology is not relevant, it's all about economics and unemployment, then I have very little to say to people who've, who've taken that decision because I, I, I'm about destroying their ideology. If you say ideology is irrelevant, then I don't have much to tell you. So I work as high as I can up to general officer level, but we need uh, at some point sooner or later, given that we are 14 years into this war, mm. to talk truth to the situation. If the enemy says something about themselves that they believe, you need to actually be honest about that. We called the Nazis Nazis because they were. We called the communists communists because that's what they called themselves. Why are we not allowed to call the enemy jihadists if that's what they call themselves? If you censor that, you're actually censoring the intelligence cycle and you're allowing politics into the national security function. So I think come 14, 15 months from now, that there will be room to start talking truthfully about the threat, and then the kinds of things that I'm advising at the operational level will have a chance to permeate through to the strategic. Now, what ISIS plan to do and how they plan to do it, they don't really keep it a secret, right? Because you can actually find it on the web. Yeah, this is, this is the one... This is know, what amazes me. Yeah, this is the one charming thing about our enemy uh, mm. today. So They love the glory of fame. Yeah, they, un unless you're looking for the GPS coordinates of Abu Bakr or Zawahiri, there's very little you know, top-secret, super-cosmic classified uh, in, in the world of the jihadi movement. In fact, 90% of what you need to know about them is available on the Internet. Where? Often, often in English. So you know, one of the most useful things you can do is to read the, the masters of jihadi strategy, just three people who shape everything these guys believe, whether they're Sunnis or, or even whether they're Shia, like Hezbollah. There's an Egyptian called Syed Qutb, Q-U-T-B, wrote a seminal book called Milestones that you can find on, on my website, the, the gawkabriefing.com. There's Bin Laden's boss, who actually created al-Qaeda, a uh, Jordanian-Palestinian uh, called Azam, Abdullah Azam, A-Z-Z-A-M, wrote the most important fatwa on jihad called Defense of Muslim Lands. And most important of all, there is the Clausewitz, there's the master strategist of jihad, a, a Pakistani general called S.K. Malik, M-A-L-I-K, Malik, mm. who wrote uh, the most important book, which is called The Quranic Concept of War, spelled with a Q, The Quranic Concept of War, which is really their, their master plan. Or those people together, they, they are the highest level expression of the jihadi movement, but your readers can Google right now ISIS's English language magazine. Believe it or not, there's a magazine called Dabik. D-A-B-I-Q. It's at issue 10 or 11 right now, and it is their regular English-language jihadi uh, magazine right. that they use to preach to their recruits, to teach them what to do, and, and it's out there, unclassified. And, and everybody who loves democracy, who loves this republic, as you, know, as you and I do, needs to read it because that is the enemy talking to their recruits about what they want to do to us.
And it comes out, what, it's updated every day? No, no, it's, it's, it's like a, a monthly or bi-monthly. You know, whenever there's a big event that occurs, like the fall of Ramadi or the declaration of the caliphate, there'll be a new issue. And, and now they're, they're, they've already published uh, 10 or 11 issues to date. It's, it's their version of what Al-Qaeda did in, in their Inspire magazine. If you remember, Inspire magazine was yeah. the English-language jihadi magazine of Al-Qaeda, while Dabiq is the far more impressive uh, jihadi magazine for, for English recruits that, that uh, ISIS publishes. On. And the other one is Inspire. Inspire. So it's inspire.com and, and dabiq.com. No, you, you won't find it at, at, at a standard URL. Mm-hmm. You'll just Google Dabik, D-A-B-I-Q, or mm. Inspire, and there's some great websites like Memory uh, uh, out there that, that, that track these as soon as they're published and post them on safe websites that, that anybody can, can download. If I start doing that, don't I get tracked down by the CIA for, for doing that? Um, only if you've got something suspicious you've done in your past. If you're, if you're buying a lot of you know, fertilizer every week or you're doing other <laughs> suspicious things, you might want to think twice. But right. if you're an upstanding you know, American, uh, I wouldn't worry about it. Now tell us about the Threat Knowledge Group. You set that up, right? Yes, so um, I used to work for the Defense Department mm. as a, a government employee, but uh, I, I left the uh, DOD because I was getting lots of requests for supporting other parts of the government. Mm. So with my wife and I, who also works in the counterterrorism field, we set up a company uh, called the Threat Knowledge Group, and uh, we provide strategic assessment, strategic support, and also training to the Federal Bureau of Investigation, the, the law enforcement, uh, uh, the uh, agents, the analysts of the FBI. We support uh, elements of the intelligence community uh, and also Special Operations Command and Fort Bragg. So you know, there, we, we have seen some very positive signs in the last two or three years where more and more people who aren't politically minded or driven by you know, personal political agendas, reaching out and wanting to understand more about the enemy. And and that's how we support them. We provide those project support uh, programs, those trainings, those those research uh, documents that help, you know, the average guy who's dedicated themselves to support the republic uh, understand better what the enemy believes and what they have planned. So uh, you can check it out at threatknowledge.org, and that's the commercial site that we have to support uh, our warfighters and our law enforcement officers. Does your role now increase in a way because now we're going to be getting a new president, so they'll have a, a new mission or a new objective or a new strategy? Well, you know, fingers crossed, uh, God willing, uh, I, I have been approached by uh, one of the presidential candidates on the Republican side to advise uh, uh, that candidate in national security matters. Mm. I, I, I'm, I'm holding my breath for the, for the next 14, 15 months, uh, hopefully to see some leadership uh, come into uh, federal government and, uh, that really wishes to reassess strategically what we've been doing for the last 14 years. So what are the three so, things? What are the three things you would recommend the candidate as a client that they need to actually execute? So with regards, uh, so number one, um, there's only one really existential threat out there. So mm. we, we, let, let's be accurate. You know, Putin's a thug. 
uh, Iran is a problem, China is a problem, but those can be managed. The, the, the primary threat are, are the members of the global jihadi movement like ISIS, and we have to take them seriously. So what, what I recommend on that front are, are a couple of things. Number one, we need a strategic counter-ideological push. Just like under the Reagan administration, from the very highest level, we had the commander-in-chief and people empowered by him push back on the narrative of the Soviet Union and on the propaganda of the communist state and their allies. We need that today. We, we need the White House to drive uh, a counter-ideological push at all levels that uh, examines the propaganda of the enemy and destroys it openly and identifies the lack of legitimacy. Second, um, we have to recognize we're not the real front line in all this, and it's going to be our allies in the region that are the front line, so we have to support them. It's, it's not going to be, you know, white-skinned Catholics like me that are con going to convince Muslims that ISIS is bad. It's going to be people like, you know, King Abdullah of Jordan, a descendant of Muhammad. It's going to be the democratically elected president of the most populous Arab nation in the world, uh, President Sisi of Egypt. We have to help these people. We can't send messages such that we don't want to train any more Syrian fighters, and we're so disinterested in the future of the region that we're sending only 50 people into theater. Mm. So we need to have a full court press to support the local actors so they can destroy the enemy. And, and lastly, um, you know, the third thing is get politics out of the analysis. Get censorship out of the intelligence cycle and the analysis of what the enemy believes and what they wish to achieve. Don't allow preconceived theories about why terrorism occurs to, to color the work of our very, very um, capable analysts and our national security professionals. Come to the table without blinders on, ask the right questions, and have them answered objectively. If we do those three things, I, I guarantee that we could get rid of ISIS in a matter of maybe months, if not just you know, a year and a half or something like that. But it's only going to be if we're truthful about the threat, if we empower those who have the most to lose, uh, and if we get politics out of the equation. Thanks a lot, Sebastian. We've come to the end of the show. But how can our readers find out more, listeners, sorry, find out more about you? Um, the, the best thing is uh, just you can Google Sebastian Gorker or all the stuff that's publicly available that I do, all my media or my analysis is on my personal website, which is www.thegorkerbriefing.com. Thegorkerbriefing.com. There's video lectures on ISIS. There's all kinds of media there. And uh, I just ask your readers, check it out and spread the word, educate yourselves, educate your families, and understand that, you know, it really is a case of them or us. Either, either jihadis win or we, the good guys, the lovers of democracy and liberty win. There is no negotiating with these people. Sebastian, as always, thank you for a very great yet scary insight. <laughs> You're very welcome, Pip. It's been my pleasure. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you all for listening. Your comment and your follow are so very welcome on my Twitter account at Vip Jazzwell and my Facebook page. Just type in the Vip Jazzwell Report. A special shout-out of thanks to my wonderful team, William Sanchez and Rick Busser. I'll be back next Sunday at 6 p.m. Eastern. Until then, I wish you a wonderful evening tonight with your loved ones. And until next Sunday, have a productive and a very happy week ahead.